0: This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. Venezuela is in a state of emergency. The economy is in crisis. The courts are closed most of the time. And so are the government offices and lots of the country's schools. There are chronic shortages. Food, water, electricity, pretty much everything. The company that bottles Coca-Cola in Venezuela stopped production because there's no more sugar in that country. Nicholas Casey moved from New York to Venezuela at the start of this year. He is now the Times' Andes bureau chief stationed in Caracas. He is in New York this week, and he talks to us about what it is like to live and work in a country on the brink of total collapse. Hi, Nick. What did you know about Venezuela before you took over as bureau chief?
1: You know, when you get to one of these places, you just introduce yourself, hand out cards, and just start hearing people give their spiel about what they're seeing is happening in the country. That happens a lot there because people want to talk about politics in Venezuela, given all that's happening.
0: Tell us what's happening. I know the inflation rate is higher there than anywhere in the world, and the president has imposed a state of emergency. What is it like to be in a country that is in a state of total collapse?
1: Well, the IMF started out the year with this dark prediction that Venezuela was going to have more than 700 percent inflation which meant that the price of everything was going to skyrocket not just by the end of the year but by every single month and that's what you're seeing you go into uh, a restaurant and you see the prices have doubled and you know for the you know what we we're going to eat so it's changed every aspect of life. It's very hard to get a lot of basic things, just like food. You get up in the morning and you see there's long lines of people who are trying to do their shopping, uh, waiting to see what will arrive in the grocery store that day. And sometimes it was very little.
0: Does the shortage of basic goods and services affect you as a reporter the same way it affects the people that you're writing about?
1: I live with the same shortages as everyone else, but one difference I have is that I get to leave Venezuela now and then to report. So when I go, I actually take a whole duffel bag and fill it up with things like Tylenol, uh, toilet paper, napkins, everything from the kitchen that you need, everything for the bathroom that you need, all these things that aren't sold. You can't buy – you can only buy two – kinds of shampoo in Venezuela, head and shoulders and Pantene. And you can only buy those if you can find them. So when you ever leave the country, as any Venezuelan who can does, they take everything they might want to bring back with them once they go.
0: One of the most amazing stories that you wrote was about a failing hospital where doctors perform surgery without gloves or water or soap or antibiotics, where there were giant and really discomforting infant mortality rates. How do you find out about stuff like that? You come to Venezuela, Willie Newman introduces you around, how do you get from there into the middle of that incredible story that you wrote?
1: No matter how surprising it might have seemed to someone outside of Venezuela that this was happening, Anybody in Venezuela who's ever gone to a hospital at this point can tell you that this is what it looks like. So shortly after I got there, I was traveling on a road trip for a blog that I was writing. We were doing short uh, profiles of different Venezuelans. And Meredith Kahoot, our photographer, and and me got to the town of Merida where we just picked up the local newspaper and saw that there was a hospital that didn't have – water. The doctors were protesting the fact that there was no water in the hospital. So we just decided to go straight to that hospital. And we spent the day there learning about how you do surgeries without water, which involved doctors going in with bottles of seltzer water to wash their hands between surgeries. And that was the beginning of that story. We, we spent several months looking at different hospitals, uh, including that one, to, just to see what they look like. And they really look like hell on earth.
0: So what are the mechanics? You come from New York and here you are and you walk into a hospital and start asking questions. Do people want to give you information? Do they view you as a stranger? What is the kind of relationship you set up?
1: Well, in that hospital, that one was being guarded by uh, militiamen from the government. And that's very common because they don't want reporters getting into these places to report on what's happening. So Meredith and I just sort of wandered outside of the hospital until we found a doctor that looked like they might help us, and we just said, hey, you know, we said, hey, we're, we're from the New York Times, could, could we see what's going on in here? We heard this, 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 this hospital doesn't have any water in it. And she said, yeah, okay, we'll go around the back and we'll go into the hospital. And that's how we went inside. Um, this wasn't a place where you could ask the public relations of the hospital if you could get in. The answer was certainly no. It's a government-controlled hospital. But, yeah, you have to work through friendly doctors in that case to figure out what's going on inside because to some degree it's a state secret.
0: And what do they think about a New York Times reporter asking questions? I They're take re- it the doctor wants to answer them. They, they really want sneaking to. you in the back door.
1: Well, a lot of Venezuelans really like to hear that the New York Times is interested in their country because mm. they feel like they've been so cut off from the rest of the world and that no one's watching what's happening there. It's really hard to find a case where someone doesn't want to tell you about all the suffering that's taking place, they're just very impressed that a news organization sent someone from their own staff to to go and, and have a look at what's happening.
0: What kind of resources are available to you? Are you by yourself in the office there? Is there a staff? Who are you with there?
1: That's the thing is these stories you can't do as one person. It's basically impossible to navigate this country by yourself. I've got a researcher that works in uh, my office with me. There's uh, a fixer and and another journalist that works with me to help me do interviews to talk to people. We often have a driver because uh, a lot of these places I've never been to before. So usually we're traveling with three or four people when we go out into these assignments and have a look at things that are happening.
0: What does a fixer do?
1: A fixer a fixer fixes things for you from trying to figure out how to get into a place like a hospital that you're not allowed to go into to calling up local contacts to figure out how you get to the president's spokesperson to figuring out what hotel might have air conditioning because you're in an area where there are tropical diseases like Zika and dengue and you don't want to get mosquito bites. It's a really key job, and it's something that when you land as a foreign correspondent, you've parachuted from from a place like New York, like I did six months ago, you can't do by yourself.
0: You wrote about your first 30 days you spent, and you wrote about driving around and seeing people lining up in groceries. You went through a mangrove swamp where you met a formerly middle-class family that now lives on $2.19 a day. You wrote about mountain towns where kidnapping and ransoming were big business. Did you find a consistency throughout the country, or was there a vast range of different kinds of unraveling going on?
1: There are. It's happening unevenly throughout Venezuela. There's places like Caracas. I'll give you an example. In Caracas, a few months ago, they said that they were going to start rationing electricity. That didn't happen because it seemed like there was just a big rebellion among everybody in the government. They didn't want there to be electricity cut in Caracas. What happened was that they just cut more electricity from everywhere that wasn't Caracas. So there are two worlds in Venezuela right now. There's the capital, which has a lot more, whether it's electricity, water, food. It's not perfect. People are still suffering there. But then there's everywhere else that's outside of the capital. And those are the places where you find some of the worst things that are are going on.
0: You've done a lot of reporting from Colombia, and I know that soon after you arrived, you received an invitation from the rebel forces, um, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and went on what sounds like a wild adventure with the FARC. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, what it was like to visit the rebel camp, what you were looking for, what you found.
1: Well, it started out with a very kind of bizarre invitation, which was that the rebels asked if we would come and visit them to write a story about what life was like in the camp, which was something that we've been wanting to do for a long time. We got- Excuse me,
0: back up for one Mm. second and tell us who the rebels are and a little bit maybe about the civil war that's been going on now for half a century and has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives.
1: Yeah, so these rebels, the FARC, have been, as you said, around for 50 years. Uh, They're mainly in rural areas. They Control huge parts of territory in in Colombia, and are known for kidnapping people, selling them for ransom, and also for managing the coca trade by for cocaine by taxing farmers in the area who are growing coca. So they're one of the most wealthy rebel organizations in the world. And they also see themselves as those that are protecting the peasants who live in the areas that they control. There's no state control in a lot of these places. It's the rebels who are in charge.
0: When you say places, what are we talking about? A jungle?
1: Some of them are jungles. Some of it's mountainsides, uh, mountainous areas. Uh, There aren't many deserts in Colombia. But anywhere where it's difficult to get soldiers or police, places that are on the periphery of Colombia that are on the edges, those are where you usually find the rebels have, have taken charge.
0: All right. Tell us what you found when you got there to the peripheries where the rebels had taken charge and invited you to come spend time with them. Well,
1: it took a while just to even get there. They gave us the names of two towns, one of which we could find on a map, and the other was nowhere on any map that we could look at. We knew we had to go to the first town and then asked to how to get to the second one. So we got to the first town in, uh, in a small plane that that we'd rented because it was going to take way too long just to get overland. The roads were really bad. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we hired uh, some, some motorcycles to basically take us like six hours to the next town that they knew. And the directions there at that point were just to wait. They didn't give us the name of anyone or any place to wait for them. The understanding was that we'd get there and they would know because they were in charge of this place. So after about an hour... They arrived in like six motorcycles, armed and with big smiles on their faces. Not many journalists like come to see them. We were, you know, among the first. So we went into the camp and we spent about a week there, learning just about how they lived in their daily lives. And, and it's interesting. One of the things that you see is that any organization, any any military, let's say, um, because the FARC's a, a military too. It's just one that operates outside the law. You expect to see people. Out fighting and combat. A lot of what it's like being a soldier is waiting for for, for the next uh, combat situation to come up. And when they're trying to organize a peace, there's even less of that. So what we were seeing was how the kind of the day-to-day was in a camp that was waiting for, for a ceasefire. And what we got a good look at, and what a lot of the article was like, was just about the ordinary uh, lives of these people there. Also, I was very interested in uh, how they got into relationships because everybody seemed to be in relationships in these camps. This was a place where there was 1960s style free love. People don't get married in these camps. You can't have children, it's not allowed. You're officially wedded to the revolution. So you had all of these rebels who had been sleeping with each other and all had had like different relationships and different strange histories with each other that was totally unexpected that's not what you expect to see when you get into your marxist leninist rebel cap uh that has like the fierce reputation for managing the coca trade and kidnapping people and it turns
0: out to be a in.
1: it was and you know it was a lot of kids who were 16 15 up to 18 in some cases, but, but, but young kids, it looked in a lot of ways like you were in a summer camp. The only difference was Except that, for
0: all those weapons.
1: Yes, the difference was, was the Kalashnikovs.
0: Did you feel yourself to be in any kind of danger at all?
1: No, actually, and I wondered about that because I didn't know who these people were, obviously, but it was very clear to them and us that they were there to take care of us and to help us in our work. There what was, was
0: in it for them to have you there watching?
1: They have a very bad reputation in Colombia, obviously, for yes, everything that they've done. Um, uh, you know, they've kidnapped people, they've taken children. There are a number of child soldiers who are there, and I've written about former child soldiers who have gotten raped by the FARC, forced into relationships. There's, they have a very long, bloody, and awful history in Colombia. At the same time. Like any institution, they're very large. There's a lot of aspects to them. And I think what Colombians know best are the worst sides of the FARC. They don't see things like the fact that they are often just a bunch of teenagers who ran away from home. And that's something that we were able to convey in this article. And I think we didn't talk to them about this. They were hoping it would be conveyed the more human side to, to what this conflict was about.
0: So who is the we and what is this conflict about?
1: I was there with a photographer, a Colombian photographer. His name was Federico Rios. And he was really key for us actually getting there because he had gone a couple of times already to go document the FARC. The FARC are really interested in having themselves documented right now. Not many people have done it. So this was his third time that that we went there. And it was really great traveling with someone who was from Colombia because, of course, you know they trust him more. They also trusted me because I was from the Times. But it was good to have someone that was actually from that same state that they were in uh, you know really kind of not just spoke spanish which i do but also sort of spoke their their language in terms of just how they kind of think of things as colombians so yeah it was it was him and me it was just the two of us that were at the camp
0: did you get any feedback after the piece published were they happy with the way you saw them and presented them to readers
1: they retweeted the article, and they said that they liked it on their new Twitter account that they have. That was the main feedback that we got from it. So we thought that they thought it was an accurate representation of, of their camp. Once it are was you out.
0: expecting an invitation, a return invitation?
1: We haven't gotten one, and I you know, I think maybe some of that's to do with the reporting that, that, that I did afterward, which was being in this camp showed a really uh, fascinating human aspect to it. But there are very, also very much darker sides to what happens there, too. So the next story that we took on was about child soldiers who had escaped the FARC. And since that story came out, uh, we haven't heard very much from them.
0: No tweeting. You wrote a terrifically horrifying story about a woman named Melita who had been kidnapped when she was nine. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: I met her actually through another photographer that had, had known her for a couple of years. And he'd been telling me a story, one, about a small community of child soldiers that he'd gotten to know up in the mountains. I told him I'd really love to go and meet them as well. And she had just one of the most heartbreaking stories. When she was nine, three soldiers, three FARC soldiers came up to her house in a canoe while she was by herself playing on the floor and said that they had food for her. And she got into their canoe, and they just abducted her. And by the next night, she was in one of the FARC camps where she'd spend... The next seven years of her life from nine to 16, learning how to make mines, learning how to fire guns, hide in trenches when there were aerial bombardments. She told me about how she had helped and and witnessed like two uh, runaways who were just like her that wanted to get away, be tracked down and shot dead on the spot for trying to leave the FARC.
0: Is your sense that this is a usual foreign posting? You've been there for six months and you've covered an economy in complete crisis. You've covered kidnapping child soldiers, people without electricity, government or food. It sounds kind of like a horrible dream.
1: It's a part of the world which has suffered tremendously over over the years.
0: Venezuela, Colombia, what else does your beat cover?
1: Yeah, it goes all the way down to Bolivia. It's Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, and then three small countries no one ever gets to, but I'm hoping to get to. Guyana, French Guyana, and Suriname that sit right above Brazil on the Caribbean.
0: Do you keep in regular touch with the New York office here, or are you sort of— operating by yourself in Latin America.
1: i to them as much as I can, but then earlier this year, international calls got suspended in Venezuela because the government wasn't letting the phone companies bring back their money in boulevards outside of the country. So it came to this point where I actually couldn't call the New York Times from my own office, from the Bureau. They had to call me.
0: Tell us a little bit about the people you cover and what their relationship with the Times is. I was interested in your saying that the FARC cared about the times and the way they were covered in our paper. Is there a sense of interest in the United States of U.S. politics of what's going on with Donald Trump and the election here?
1: Well, Venezuela is probably the most interesting country when you're talking about how the New York Times has seen people. I think in Venezuela are very happy that we've been covering a lot of the problems that they've been going through. At the same time, it is almost hated by a lot of people in the government. And just a couple of weeks ago. After the hospital story came out, Diosdado Cabello, who is one of the powerful pro-Chavez, pro-Chavista politicians on the left, went on TV and showed a picture of me on TV and the thumbnail of the article on Twitter and said that I had too many friends that were conservative, ultra-right fascists who had fed me the story and that, that I was what they called an info-mercenary, which I don't know exactly. It seems to be a combination between information and mercenary. That's the reaction of, of, of a government that gets very sensitive about these stories. But I think the important thing was that they never said that there was anything that was false in the story.
0: Tell us a little bit about your daily life. You've mentioned a lot of travels. Are you on the move a lot? Or are you in the home office in a cafe drinking latte and looking at The FARC and their Twitter account?
1: Not a lot of cafe time anymore. I'm on the road a lot. There was like a two-month period where I realized I'd only been in Caracas for about four days. And I had traveled to four other countries in that time period. So, you know, sometimes you just get to the point where you forget like what country you're in or where your own bed is or why you're there. And you wake up and you have to sort of orient yourself and what you're doing. Because it is very inconsistent. Meredith, the photographer, and I were in this town in Venezuela called Puerto La Cruz, working on this story about the collapsing hospitals. This was a place about five hours outside of Caracas, driving when one of the nights that we were working there, we got a call from the international desk. Rick Gladstone called and said, I guess you're seeing what's going on in Ecuador right now. And I said, no, I'm, I'm in this, this hell on earth style hospital right now. What's going on in Ecuador? He said, well, there's been a, a 7.8 earthquake I think you're going to need to figure out how to get there. And that's how things can often be. So, yeah, we wrapped up work that night and then very early in the morning because it's not safe to drive on the roads at night. We had to wait till the next morning. We we drove straight to the airport and got the next ticket that we could to Ecuador. And Meredith and I were there another week trying to document the aftermath of this earthquake. And from there – I think I went back to Caracas a little bit and then went to Columbia. I I, I actually can't remember. But there
0: is no schedule. You're just basically going where the news is. Is that right?
1: When there's news, you're just following that. And, you know, when you're working on larger enterprise stories, you're trying to sort of figure out how you can sort of stack them one on the other. But myself is a As a reporter, I've you know, as a foreign correspondent, I always really feel that the stories aren't usually in the city that you're living in. The real stories are kind of outside; they're on the periphery. Um, That's where the interesting stuff is going on. What it means is you just don't spend a lot of time in your own bed. In the end,
0: Nicholas, what's your idea of a good story? What are you looking for?
1: I really like stories that are small but reflect something much larger. I'm often looking for someone who's not famous, who you probably haven't heard about but whose story, if you can get deep deep inside of it, can show you a larger truth about what's going on in a country. And, and that's, that's usually what I'm, I'm trying to look for best. I want, when someone reads an article that I wrote, not to come out in a case of like collapsing hospitals and tell you, here are three reasons why the hospital system in Venezuela is collapsing and there are no medicines and there are people dying there. I, I want them to say, I I felt like I was there because I think that is the best way to impact someone who's not in this place and to make them care.
0: The Melita story is a very good example of that. Yes.
1: That was a story which I think told the story of so many Colombians who have been kidnapped and have gone through that situation. And the larger struggle of what it's going to be like for all of these guerrillas to try to join society again.
0: How does compassion fit in with your job as a journalist, both when you're at the hospital and there's no water and you come from a world in which there is a lot of water and when you're reporting on things that are sort of more aberrant to U.S. imaginations?
1: Compassion is very important for a journalist. I mean, you have to have compassion and curiosity to even go from, you know, some life in the U.S. to going to living in one of these places where things are are really wrecked. It has to be compassion that drove you there to to want to be there and sort of see what it is about, and compassion that brings you there to try to learn about how it works and what the problems are, and also compassion to want to share that with people who aren't there. But there are also, I think, limits to the compassion that you can have. In some ways, as a journalist, you're a lot like a doctor in an emergency room. You can't cry necessarily over what you're seeing because if you let it impact you emotionally and totally then you won't be able to see the next patient it's going to get in the way of your ability to do your work and to do what you need to do and it will get in the way of you being able to tell these stories
0: thank you very much nicholas casey this is inside the times i'm susan Lehman. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and you can find out more about Times Insider by visiting nytimes.com slash insider.